0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at Podfeet.com, a technology podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 30th, 2018, and this is show number 712. This week, we've got an interesting story of a tangled mess in Gmail by Terry Vogelar, and a review by Troy Shimkus, and even a review by little old me. After that, we'll have a chat with Bart about his new router and how he chose a solution many of us wouldn't have considered. Well, I was honored this week to be uh, on the Daily Tech News Show annual prediction show for 2019. Every year since well, forever, as far back as Buzz Out Loud days, Tom Merritt has held a prediction show followed at the end of the year with the same guests coming back to judge themselves on how well they predicted the future. I stink at predictions, so I crowdsourced the problem. I took ideas from our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook, our Slack group over at podfee.com slash Slack, and I even threw it out there to the SMR Podcast Facebook group at facebook.com slash SMR Podcast. I didn't use anyone's direct answer, but it was great to get so many ideas blended together by all of you to help me sound somewhat prescient. I hope so, anyway. Many thanks to all of you who helped me with this. You can watch the video version of DTS 3438 or subscribe over at dailytechnewsshow.com. Well, I took a week off from recording Chit Chat Across the Pond, but we'll be back next week with Darren Carr of the Mac Quadcast and then back into Programming by Stealth the following week with Bart Bouchatz. Terry Vogelar ran into a very puzzling problem with his Gmail and he enlisted Steve's help in diagnosing the problem. It's a unique problem, but I think his explanation will be something to tuck away for a rainy day when someone else has a similar problem. Let's have a listen.
1: Hi, this is Terry Vogela from Holland. Recently, I ran into a weird problem. Whenever I send mail from mail.app on my iMac using Gmail, people received it as if it was sent from my wife's email address. So they replied to her. Her Gmail account is listed among the accounts to synchronize her calendar with my mycalendar.app. But for the rest, it is not an active email account on my system. I double-checked that it shows my address as the from address. And even when I viewed those messages in my send folder, I see my own address. Yet, the receiver saw her address and replied to it. Totally baffling. Steve generously offered to help me. He found out that there was no trace of my address in the header data of the email I sent him. Then it finally dawned on me. I remembered that sending email uses a different protocol than receiving email. Receiving is usually IMAP. Sending is SMTP. So although the IMAP account of my wife's account was inactive... I apparently was using the SMTP settings of her account. Usually, the SMTP servers are just as easily fooled as the normal postal service. If I would claim to be Leonardo da Vinci, people would receive mail from Leonardo, and the postal service or the SMTP server uh, wouldn't care. People can impersonate whomever they want when they send email. This of course is abused uh, quite often by spammers. Apparently, Gmail corrects the message when the from address doesn't match the settings of the SMTP server. So it probably is a feature, not a bug. But man, what a weird problem to solve.
0: Thanks a lot for that, Terry. I really appreciate you recording that because that's something I don't think I would have figured out, but I'm really glad I know about this now. Now, some of you may be asking, as I did, how to find the SMTP settings to which Terry refers. Open Mail Preferences and select the Accounts tab. Then select the Gmail account in question. The third tab over on this page will be Server Settings. It will show you your outgoing mail account, and that's the SMTP account they're talking about, and, uh, which in Terry's case was set incorrectly to his wife's account. If yours is mismatched, like Terry's, you can use the pull-down on your mail account to choose the correct account and even manually enter the correct server information. Thanks again, Terry. That was pretty cool. Being retired, I have the luxury of very slowly sipping a cup of coffee in bed every morning while I play on the internet with my iPad. The problem of slowly sipping coffee is that quite quickly it gets cold, and I prefer very hot coffee. For my second cup of coffee, which is consumed after working out in the morning, I have a thermal mug and I order my Starbucks at an insanely hot 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Now I'm sure you're really sympathetic to the terrible challenge I face on that first cup of coffee though, right? Cold coffee is not good coffee. The solution to the problem is from a company called Ember from Ember.com. You may remember that we interviewed them at CES back in 2016 when they first introduced a smart travel mug that was designed to heat and cool your drink. Their product was not yet released, and as it was a tall thermal travel mug, it really didn't solve my problem. I wanted a coffee cup. Well, since that time, Ember has introduced a smart ceramic mug that will keep your beverage warm. It comes in either white or black. and looks like just like a very traditional white or black coffee mug. The original Ember travel mug comes in at $150, which makes the newer Ember ceramic mug sound like a steal at $80. This is clearly in the luxury item category, which is why I never asked for it for so long. But it really could solve my challenging cold coffee problem, so I asked for it and got it from Santa this year. The Ember Mug comes with a plug-in charging coaster that has two little gold pins sticking up on the surface. When you set the mug down, two gold rings on the bottom of the mug made up with these pins allowing the coaster to charge the internal batteries on the mug. Now let's back up for a moment to 1985 when Steve had a coffee mug that basically solved the same problem in the same way. The coaster was a heating element that was activated by a magnet in the bottom of the mug. When the mug was on the coaster, the metal plate on the coaster itself would heat up, thereby heating up the bottom of the mug and keeping the liquid inside the cup quite hot. So how is the Ember mug really an advancement in beverage heating? Let me count the ways. First of all, the mug itself has a battery in it, which is charged by the coaster. The coaster doesn't heat up the mug, the mug heats itself. Now strangely, the mug doesn't get hot even when the liquid temperature is set to the maximum of 145 degrees. It gets pleasantly warm, but it's not quite enough to heat up my cold hands in the morning. The last thing is, you have control of how hot the beverage gets, and that 1985 solution did not do that. Now how is this Ember mug smart? Well, Of course it has an app, because everything has an app nowadays. The app provides a ton of cool capability you probably didn't think you needed, but maybe you do. The first thing you do with the app is to pair your mug, which is a very simple process and it worked flawlessly. There was no getting on a 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi network or any of that nonsense. Simply select pair new device, then hit the power button on the bottom of the mug and you're done. Well, except for the inevitable firmware update, right? We definitely live in different times when your coffee mug needs a firmware update. Once that's done, you're invited to personalize your mug by changing the color of the little light that glows near the bottom of the mug when the Ember logo is facing you. I do have to say, this is biased towards right-handed people. If you hold the mug in your left hand, the logo and the light will be facing away from you. In any case, it's fun to play with the color wheel to choose just that perfect shade of pink for your mug. This light can be important if you have multiple Ember mugs in your household. When you pick up the mug, there's a motion sensor inside that triggers the light to come on, and that allows you to immediately tell you whether it's your mug. If you're blind, that's not going to help you very much, but don't worry, because the Ember app isn't accessible anyway. You're blocked at the very first step, I'm afraid, because you can't select your mug with voiceover turned on. Well, we'll have to keep going for those who have the gift of sight. After you do the initial setup of your Ember mug, you're invited to choose a temperature for your liquid refreshment by sliding a scrolling wheel from left to right. The purpose of the Ember mug is to maintain the temperature, but for grins and giggles, I asked it to heat some water from 100 degrees Fahrenheit to 145 degrees. It did heat it up to that temperature, but that burned through the entire battery, so it was not able to maintain 145 when it got there. After recharging the mug by putting it on the charger coaster, I tested again with a cup of freshly brewed coffee, and it kept it at 145 degrees Fahrenheit for well over an hour before the battery ran out. If you drink your beverage faster than I do, you could probably get a couple of cups worth of uh, keeping the temperature hot before needing to recharge, but definitely plan on charging your cup frequently. It's not hard to recharge because you can simply use the coaster when you set the cup down takes about an hour and a half to recharge the battery fully. Now, if you're more adventurous than me and actually drink different beverages at different temperatures, Ember Mug can store six different preferences. You can create temperature presets that you can name and then set with the tap of an icon button. They provide five example names and temperatures along with one called Heater Off, which I guess could also be useful, like you just don't want it to keep heating. Ember also has provided a tea timer so you can be notified when the perfect steeping time has elapsed. Three tea times can also be defined and named for different types of tea. Now you might be wondering whether this is the cup for you. I have two answers for you. Maybe yes, maybe no. Pat Dingler and I both got the Ember mug right around the same time. She returned hers and I love mine. Let's compare our usage to see why. I drink one cup of coffee very slowly every morning. Pat drinks two cups of coffee fairly quickly. Her coffee doesn't really have time to cool down. I drink my coffee in one location sitting in bed, so I have the coaster plugged in right next to me sitting on my bedside table, and that works perfectly. I do have to remember to let it charge before I bring it down and wash it so it's ready to have fresh coffee in it the next morning. Pat, on the other hand, wanders all over her house with her coffee, so setting it down on the coaster wasn't always a viable option. Now, you might think you could just get a second coaster, and that is an option. Ember charges $40 for a second charging coaster. I think faced with that uh, really needing a second coaster, I'd buy a second cup slash coaster combo for $70 just in case I later broke the ceramic mug for that price. Now, Pat likes to make tea in the afternoon. She evidently drinks a lot of tea because it lasted just through two cups for her and that wasn't enough for her needs. Again, this gets back to the inconvenience to her of setting the cup down in the charging coaster, which wasn't a problem at all for me. So if you like me and you have a consistent location for drinking your hot beverages, and you might really find the Ember mug useful. I'm picturing when I was working and often drank coffee at my desk, where charging coaster would have been perfectly convenient. If you drink your hot beverages quickly and don't care if they cool off, then definitely don't invest in an Ember mug. If you wander locations and don't want to shell out $40 for each spot, you might want to set your coffee down so it can charge, the Ember Mug is also the wrong product, but I'm delighted with my Ember Ceramic Mug and I love having piping hot coffee for the hour it takes me to drink it. A luxury item to be sure, but one I adore. While I'm doing the podcast right now, I am sipping a cup of warm tea, which is at a perfect temperature for me. All right, let's switch gears and listen to a Book review by Troy Shimkus.
2: Hello, fellow castaways. This is Troy Shimkus coming to you from sunny Florida. I wanted to do a quick review of a product that I recently came across called Rocketbook. I've long been interested in taking written notes during meetings and turning them into shareable electronic artifacts. Ever since I was a student, I had to kind of attend meetings or classes and needed a better way to take notes. In grad school, I had one of those old original HP tablets. It's still in a closet somewhere, I'm sure. But it was one of the first generation that had a removable keyboard and a stylus pen that was kind of attached with a little tether to the screen. I enjoyed using that in college for electronic notes. It was actually a very useful tool, but also very heavy and, of course, by today's standards, clunky as anything. As an educator later in life, I was always looking for the next best note-taking slash organizing of notes tool that we could find. So I came across a product called Livescribe, which I loved, and I eventually even played a role in selling and training on those products to school districts here in Florida. Once the iPad came out, I pretty much gave up on any pen input, even though my typing wasn't all that fast. And now that I have the iPad Pro with the Apple Pencil, I have landed with Notability as my note taker of choice, and I haven't looked back. So out of the blue, my company decided to send out a little thank you gift to all of us, and this year it was the Rocket Book. The short version of the review is that it's a fun thing to play with, but I don't know that I found any real unique use for the product that I couldn't do with any old piece of paper and a smartphone. So basically, the product is a notebook of special glossy paper that's kind of made from a type of polyester and an erasable pen. So you can actually write on the pages and then erase them using the included microfiber cloth and a little spritz of water. It's a good way to not create more paper waste for sure. The nifty part comes in when you use the Rocketbook app to snap a picture of the page, which can then be sent to several different cloud services like Dropbox or Google Drive. You can send it through email, a message, Slack, etc. Each page has a set of seven symbols on the bottom that each kind of correspond to a separate macro, if you will. And they will automatically send that page to the defined service when you set up when you scan it with the app. So in the app, you set up that this symbol goes to this service and that symbol goes to this service. And when you scan the page and you mark on those little symbols, it automatically gets sent to those services. So there's an array of dots on each page that kind of assist the app in scanning and positioning the paper. So it helps kind of you don't have to keep it perfectly aligned. It'll use those dots to help with the scanning and alignment of the pages. But what I find lacking is more of the post scanning use. Pages get sent to the cloud services, and from there, you have to rely on the cloud services for organizing the pages. For example, sending to Google Drive creates a PDF with a date stamp name that really doesn't mean much. But then Google can then turn that into a Google Doc and attempt an OCR, but at that point, you lose any drawings. And then you've got a collection of individual pages on Google Drive. So while it's a nifty little product, and it will definitely save paper, I haven't yet found any great use for it in business or my personal life. One last funny thing is there's a note on the inside front cover that says, do not microwave this notebook. Now, while I thought that might just be them being a little funny, like some tech companies do, kind of like MailChimp comes to mind. This company actually has another product that is apparently a notebook you do microwave to erase the pages. It seems their primary focus is on reducing paper consumption. And that's an admirable thing in and of itself. Now, if you can create a sticky note that I can write on and then it just sends itself to my computer without having to be scanned or anything, that would be a life changer for me. Happy holidays, all.
0: Well, thanks, Troy. That's interesting. It's, I still want to try it. It still looks pretty cool, but uh, I can see how that would be a problem that everything is just kind of barfed over into the cloud service that you choose without any kind of organization like, the, like what you get over in Notability, which, by the way, still one of my favorite apps on the iPad, especially with Pencil. Well, one of the ways you can choose to help the Podfeet podcast is by pledging a dollar amount per episode of the Nocella cast. My favorite thing about Patreon to do this is how you are in control of how much you choose to pay and how to distribute the money. Let's say things get a little tight one month. You can dial back your payments for a while until things loosen up for you. Let's say you're feeling a little bit flush. You can be like Chris did this month and dial up your payments. You have complete flexibility to control your finances, and that's how it should be. If you've been planning on becoming a patron of the PodFeed podcast, now is a great time to get started by going to podfeed.com slash Patreon and signing up. If you can't afford to do it, please do not feel guilty about that. As Chris of the SMR podcast recommends, just go get one of your friends and put them in a headlock and make them subscribe to the show. That's great too. Many thanks to all of the patrons and especially Chris for increasing his donation this month. Well, guys, I've asked uh, Bart to come on here to tell us a story of a new router that he's got. And it sounds like it's a pretty interesting thing. How are you doing today, Bart?
3: Uh, uh, Mentally fine. Physically, I have a bloody head cold and I hate having a head cold. It makes me dumb, cranky and something else. Can't remember (laughs) what the something else is.
0: Well, uh Bart, um, I, you're still twice as smart as me, so I'll take it. So uh, I, I remember we were talking on the show. Uh, you may have said it on the air. I know you said it to me, was that your router had to be rebooted several times in a row recently.
3: Yeah, there was one day we recorded and I was a bit nervous because three times previously that day I'd had to go down and do a hard reset on my router. And that, oh. yeah, and it it behaved itself that day and it behaved itself for about three or four more days. And then it decided to do it again. and. You know, every time it would come back, but it never quite seemed to come back for as long. So um, I very quickly decided queasy. it was yeah, it was time for a plan B. Um, so I now have a new router, which is the end of this story. But it's it's actually interesting because I took a little bit of homework to figure out what to do because for years and years and years now, it might even be for decades, which is kind of a scary thought. Um, I've been running. Uh, one form or another of a, a dedicated router version of Linux or UnIX, so I think I used to use one called IPCOP, which is based off Linux, and then some time ago I switched to a bSD-based router operating system called PF Sense. Hmm. Um, which is pretty hardcore, actually. Um, we use it in work as well, where it keeps a few thousand people um, on wireless at the same time. so it's fairly so powerful. is that
0: a hardware? Or are you talking about a software
3: solution? Well, PFSense is software, but it obviously has to exist on some form of hardware, because otherwise it's a bit hypothetical, really, as a router goes.
0: (laughs) Right, right. But you didn't go down to the local shop and grab a router off the shelf. You didn't get a Netgear or a a Euro or anything like that.
3: No. For years now, I have been running off scrap. Basically, all a router is is a machine with two network cards or more. And it just runs some brains to take packets from one and shove them to the other. So basically, a a router straddles two or more networks. So you have one network card in one network and one network card in the other network. And the router's operating system just shuffles packets left, right, left, right. You know, it does a bit of natting, maybe. It does a bit of firewalling. But ultimately, it's just shoveling packets from one network card to the other network card. And so I've been using... Basically, when you work in a university, there's always some department somewhere scrapping a lab full of old PCs. And (laughs) I buy a very, very cheap PCI network card to make it have two and then hey presto. I actually checked what I had just out of curiosity. I shoved the Dell service tag into Dell's website to see how how old exactly was the machine that I've been using for so long I can't remember how long. The machine's original purchase date was September 2007.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the brand new iPhone had just come out.
3: <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah, my router wow. yeah, so my router was purchased when the iPhone came into existence. Wow, because ultimately there's not wow. really you know when you think about the amount of CPU and RAM in your average Netgear, it's teeny tiny. So even a Dell from eleven years ago, twelve years ago, it's fine. It can it it has more oomph than than your modern Netgear. So you and really, you're not
0: talking about a lot of stress on you know in terms of heat because it's not doing all that much, right?
3: Right, exactly. It's just you know in one PCI card out the other PCI card. Really, I mean you know routing isn't really that stressful in this. You know, you have a 100-port network switch running a corporation. They they stress a bit more, but not a home network. It's fairly right. lightweight. So, so, yeah, so I've been running PFSense for ages. And so I had to buy a new PFSense machine, which is kind of what the story's about. But I figured at some stage we should probably describe what. why do I run PFSense at all?
0: Right. Why didn't you go down to the shop and buy something off the shelf?
3: Yeah, so I figured... You know, so, so PFSense is an open source router OS and it's based on BSD Unix. So if anyone's curious, you can go to pfSense.org and you can see all about it. And you can, you can download the image onto a thumb drive and install it on pretty much anything. And because it's BSD based, it'll run on pretty much any CPU architecture you care to shake a stick at, including like, you know, your WR54, you know, your, your, your basically your router hardware should work, embedded hardware should work, an Intel Nook should work. Um, hmm. if you wanted to. The problem is they don't really have good I.O., but you could run it off a of Raspberry Pi if you wanted to. Um, it's just they don't have good network cards. Uh, I mean, you could re- pretty much, if it can calculate, and it's not an abacus, it can probably run PFSense, <laughs> because BSD Unix compiles on just about everything, and it's just BSD Unix, really. Um,
0: By the way, I just did a search. I suddenly remembered that you had talked about this a little bit once before. You talked about it on the show in... 2012, March of 2012.,
3: <laughs> I've been using this for quite some time.:
0: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember because I, I, I just did a search on PF Sense, and it's talking about your Dell GX110, uh, a Pentium3.
3: Ah, okay, so that's the previous one. So the the, the one that died last week was uh, an Optiplex uh, 745.
0: So it's even now, oh my gosh.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't think they make Optiplexes anymore. Anyway, yeah, the GX110, so that would have been my an earlier incarnation. The great thing is, though, you can back up the entire config to an XML file, and so you just take the hardware, chuck it in the bin, grab new hardware, put your XML file back, and you're, everything is where you left it. So... All, you oh, know, all of your configuration is just as it was, which is lovely. Um, so, as I say, it'll run on pretty much anything. Um, and it ships with all of the features you'd expect from an enterprise-level router out of the box. Um, I mean, everything a home router does and quite a bit more that you'd expect from an enterprise-level router. So, you have DHCP, of course. But it's not just any old DHCP. It's ISC DHCPD, which is basically the industry standard it's it's what we use in work to power an entire university. Like that is the ultimate DHCP server. It is the Apache web server of DHCP servers, if that makes any sense.
0: So DHCP to the audience is dynamic host control
3: protocol? Did I get it right? Close, close. Configuration. Close so, Configuration
0: protocol. So that's what, what that's the post the postal uh person saying, I got this, I'm gonna hand it off to this other uh to this device and this I this packet I'm gonna hand it over quite. here. It's, no, um, is that is that net.
3: The, 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 I'm not quite sure what you're describing there, but what DHCP does... So, in the olden days, we used to hard-code IP addresses and network settings into our computers. And that doesn't oh, that's work. Right, okay. That doesn't work if you have a phone that moves from network to network or a laptop that moves from network to network. That kind of only works in the old desktop world. So, mm-hmm. DHCP is a product... Uh, DHCP server listens for network broadcast, which is basically... You turn on your device, which doesn't know any network settings, and it just broadcasts to the entire internet. It broadcasts to the IP address 0.0.0.0, which is basically just at every listening network card. And the DHCP server hears this plea for help, and it replies directly to the MAC address that was screaming for help and says, yeah, don't panic. Use this IP address with this net mask, and use this default gateway, and use these DNS servers. And if you're a Windows machine, use this um, WINS server, and use join to this domain, and if you're a telephone, you can download your config from this TFTP server over here. And if you need to use an internet proxy, use this one over here. Pretty much anything you can configure, actually. It's amazing how much DHCP can hand down to devices if it wants to. But it basically okay. gets your devices online without you having to tell them what to do. It's basically the network telling the device how to behave on the network. And your home So that's does regular this.
0: DHCP, though. So what is ISC DHCPD?
3: d It does... It does all of that. So everything you're used to in your home router, you just have more buttons, knobs, and twiddles. (laughs) Right? You couldn't get your home router to hand out the config for an IP phone. But you could Hmm. do that with IACDHCPD. Um, Okay. You can set rules basically saying that if your Mac address is in this range, you go into this VLAN. If it's in that range, you go into the other VLAN, which is why you can do cool things like if you plug a phone into the network, it ends up on the phone network. And if you plug a computer in, it ends up in the computer network. It magically does that because, you know, you can configure ISC DHCPD to to filter based on MAC address, all sorts of cool things. So okay. it's everything your home router does in terms of DHCP and a whole bunch of stuff you'd usually use within an office. But, you know, as I say, PFSense is used within large organizations.
0: You may not need it at home, but you get it.
3: Exactly. Okay. Um and one of my roles in work is to manage our DHCP server in work, which is ISE DHCPD. So I kind of... It's my friend. We work together <laughs> quite closely. So I like having it around because I know how to make it go. Okay. okay. Uh, you also get a caching DNS forwarder, which is powered by an open source uh, DHCP implementation called DNS mask. Um, and that has everything you'd expect from your home router, which is basically it will... So... Your home router will act as a pretend DNS server for all of the machines on your home network, and then it will forward the requests onto whatever you configure in your home router. So you might configure your router to use 8.8.8.8 or 1.1.1.1 or 9.9.9.9 or whatever. We have so many cool DNS servers.
0: Some repeating number in our our current world.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we did a whole episode actually on choosing a DNS server. Um, And that's done with a forwarder. And a good home router will also have a, will throw a cache into that forwarder so that if one person looks up google.com, it remembers that for everyone else who's sharing the network with you. Um, and I think most home routers will do that. So DNS mask will do all of that kind of stuff, but DNS mask will also integrate with ISCD HCPD and it will answer for the names you give your machines. When you reserve them an IP address in DHCP. So you can go into DHCP on your, on your typical home router and you can say that this MAC address will always get this IP address. So that's, it's either called the DHCP reservation or a static lease. You'll see it, it referenced right. as, as either or, right. depending on your router manufacturer. Well, with PFSense, you can also give it a name. Oh, uh, that's nice. So local or whatever. And Except
0: it would never be called that.
3: Right. I mean, you might probably give it a cooler name, right? But <laughs> like whatever your
0: name is. <laughs> <Not> local.
3: <laughs> I'm very boring. I call, uh, I call my machines by... I take the I in Apple's product name and replace it with a B and then stick the year after it. So BMAC-2013 became BMAC-2018 recently. a <laughs> uh, wild thing. Yeah, I know. Uh, it sort of reminds me of when my Apple care is up, <laughs> because I see mm. the year of my machines all the time. Uh, anyway, mean. but... With PF Sense, those actually get registered as DNS names. And so although they're not real DNS on real planet Earth, DNS Mask says, oh, I'm happy to serve that out for you. And so it basically intercepts any query for this name you just made up, whether you own the domain or not, and it answers back and says, Yeah, yeah that's that IP address over there, which was handed out by DHCP. So you you don't even have to have reservations necessarily, but it is better to have reservations. Um and Yeah, so basically I just give my machines names when I'm setting them up in DHCP and then the DNS server will make those names actually work on the network. So I can type them into, you know, backslash backslash name of Mac forward slash name of share or whatever if I'm doing a file share. Uh, when I set up my printer, I can give it a nice friendly name so I can find it easily. When I'm setting up my Plex server, it gets a nice name. When I'm setting up my NAS, it gets a nice name. You get the idea. So any name I put in when I'm setting up the DHCP config, the DNS server will intercept it and answer back appropriately. Which is really convenient. You okay. can also do overrides, or if you want to block some domains that you just don't want to be accessible from within your house, you can do an override and just just tells DNS mask, yeah, pretend this domain doesn't exist. Or Pretend this domain is some other IP address or whatever. So you, you can get a bit carried away if you want. If you want to, but which you can use the blacklists for spam and stuff. If you want to go down that road, I couldn't be bothered. I just use it so that all of my devices have really nice names. Oh, that's
0: cool. Yeah. Do
3: you do that with every kind of device?
0: I mean, every phone, everything.
3: I do it with mine, and I'll, uh, yes, actually, I do. And the reason why is because the third enterprise level f- or the third feature that's really cool is it has a very advanced firewall so as well as doing the usual stuff you would expect from a firewall on a home router it does NAT it does port forwarding and um, it has the concept of DMZ addresses it does UPnP and NAT PMP if you wanted to uh, it also does something called traffic shaping which can be used in a couple of different ways but one of the ways you can use it is that you can Give certain IP addresses priority over other IP addresses. Or you can put bandwidth caps. Um, So Hmm. before we got good cable internet, this was a really big deal for for both myself and my husband, because he's a gamer and I'm a podcaster. And so we (laughs) would only have 10 megs of bandwidth. So what I had done is I had basically put all of his devices in one half of our IP range and all of my devices in another half of the IP range, and I set up a traffic shaping rule that says that neither half can ever use more than 75%. So oh, that, okay. So that means that, in effect, it appears as if our router, uh, our internet connection is slightly slower than it really is, so it's only a 7.5 meg connection. However, we're guaranteed it is never slower than a two point five meg connection because where no one is allowed to take more than seventy five percent, no matter how hard you try, no matter how big of a torrent you're running or whatever.
0: So there's always some left over for the other guy,
3: right? Which is enough for Skype.
0: Yeah. Right. Right.
3: Or for I a do game.
0: remember the days of you running out of the house or around the house, going, "What are you doing?"
3: <laughs> yeah. And the solution to that was traffic shaping. Um another potential way another solution back in the days when Skype used to be easy to configure to use a, a dedicated port so you could tell mm-hmm. Skype to always use a certain port then I used traffic shaping differently in pfSense then I had it set up that the port I had picked for Skype got the top priority and all other traffic was told, was basically put second in line behind Skype traffic and that was great until the Skype just changed and that stopped working reliably
0: so I've heard people talk about quality of service,
3: QoS. Is yeah. this
0: essentially that, but you're 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 able to fine-tune it?
3: Yes, and this does also have support for traditional QoS as well. Okay. So, yes. I mean, there's a whole protocol around QoS, which you can, which is also implemented by PFSense. So at this stage, these oh, are kind oh, of... Oh, so you're saying it's different, though? Yeah, this is traffic shaping. So this is a whole different feature. How is... Hmm. Q-, Q QOS is, is a different? protocol. Q- QOS is a defined protocol. That it's it's like oh it is. Yes, I could hmm. I could look up it's um eight oh two whatever number. It's it's an eight oh two something. Pretty much everything huh. networky is an eight oh two dot something. Um, it okay. might be dot one, so, two. so I thought
0: conceptually it was like I want to make sure that the packets all stay in order when you're delivering video, but if you're um. You know, you're typing an email. It doesn't matter because it's going to catch up.
3: Yeah. It, it, yes. I mean, ultimately, the, the, what the QoS protocol is for is for prioritizing stuff like VoIP, so that it be, so that it's basically treated differently by the router than other stuff. But traffic shaping and, and that's different
0: define, than what you're doing.
3: Yeah, traffic shaping you, is a feature of the firewall that's built into Netgate. It's oh, sorry, into FreeBSD. It's, Pfsense. It's actually into Pfsense. Well, it's actually the free BSD firewall, which I think is called <laughs> okay. FW. i um, pretty sure FW is the most current firewall. Basically, the BSD firewall is quite powerful, and that's what PFSense gets for free, because hey, it's BSD. Um, okay. And you can also do things like time-based rules. So if you have your DHCP set up to give your kids' devices certain IP addresses, you could say that after 9pm, those IP addresses aren't allowed on the internet. But everyone else is. Oh, oh Interesting. So you can start to do really fun things with these more advanced features. Um and your children. <laughs> yeah. So that's um, sort of basically it does everything your home router does, but just a little bit nicer. But then it also does stuff that your home router probably doesn't do at all. Um, for a start, your home router, generally speaking, has two, maybe three networks. So it'll have a WAN and a LAN interface and maybe a guest network. So that's two obvious ones, and maybe a third one along for the ride. PFsense could have a hundred networks if you wanted to. You just need to have no. the hardware to talk to it.
0: You'd have to have extra network cards.
3: No, because it no. has VLAN support, so you can run Uh-oh. multiple, multiple. So there's a, there's a, there's another 802 protocol for running multiple separate subnets on one physical wire, and as long as they then connect to a switch somewhere. Else in your house that has the ability to break those apart again to sort of demultiplex it, if you like, um, then you can have basically one network port on the inside of the pfSense box serving out a hundred VLANs, which would then be split oh, okay. up into a hundred okay. actual separate networks at various edge points around your network. So
0: I think this Joe LaGreca has talked to me about doing this, and whatever kind of router he's running, he does this.
3: Yeah, I mean VLANs are available on high end. Home routers. But they're, you're not going to get them on your bargain basement router. You, that's that's something for okay. you. If your router supports it, it'll be under the advanced tab. And you probably have to click a <laughs> few buttons to make it show up.
0: By the way, I do like the fact that Netgear put a firmware
3: update under advanced. Oh, my which God.
0: Which means anybody who's not advanced won't ever update the router, right?
3: And most people see that button for what it is, a warning, only trade here if you know what the hell you're doing.
0: Oh, yeah, and when you click the buttons, it goes, are you sure you really know what you're doing? You don't want, you. Really, you
3: probably don't want to go in here. So you probably don't want to update your firmware. That's genius. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yeah. genius. Okay, so one of the nice things is you could actually, if you had multiple physical network cards, you could do our Y-shaped combi- configuration of routers in a single box. mm. So basically, three network cable, or three, three. So you basically you'd you buy a, you know, you take a scrap PC, you buy two PCI network cards. The say the built-in one you plug into the router from FiOS or whoever you get it from, and then you have two holes left. Well, one for your IoT network and one for your regular network. No need mm-hmm. for extra routers. See, so, you know, right. easy to do. Um, it also does something called the forwarding. So I describe the as shouting for help. Right, which Mm -hmm. means it's a broadcast. But broadcasts are contained within a physical LAN. If you have three LANs or whatever, if you have three networks, then you would need to have three different DHCP servers listening. But DHCP forwarding allows DHCP requests from one island universe to be passed on to a central server somewhere else, and it will basically relay the answers. It'll act as a man in the middle. Yeah, this guy over here on that network is looking for an IP address. Do you know anything about that, Mr. DHCP server? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell him he should use and it forwards oh, it on. So you can have yeah. one ISC D H C P D server serving as a DHCP server for arbitrarily many networks. So can, you are do you actually
0: setting leader. up these DH, ISE servers?
3: You're configuring them or through th- a web GUI. So the whole of PFSense is configured through a web GUI. So you basically connect to the PFSense box's IP address, and you log in, and then you have a web interface, a really nice web interface. It's even responsive. So it'll even work on your phone. And so you're mm. doing everything by pointy, clicky, typey, typey. OK. OK. Now, there is also an SSH interface. So if you like being a Unix nerd, there is a full featured Bash command prompt down there, too. Nice. And all of those config files that are powering all of these standard technologies, like DNS mask and um, the DHCPD, they're all just the standard stuff. So the web interface is just doing what you would do on the terminal, but, you know, without you having to type. So if you want to get in on the terminal, you know, have added and you can mix and match. So if you change the config file in one, you, it should reflect in the other. So it's, you know, it's it's a full pair of Unix okay. in there. Okay, cool. Um, you also have a nice easy way to do Wake on LAN. So Wake on LAN is another one of these protocols. In order to make a machine Wake on LAN, you have to calculate a magic packet, it's called, which is based on the MAC address of the machine you want to wake up. And you can get apps to do Wake on LAN. And high-end home routers should have Wake on LAN, but it's by no means guaranteed. I don't believe
0: in Wake on LAN. I do not believe in it. I've never been able to get a machine to wake up that doesn't feel like it. <laughs>
3: Just well, okay so the BIOS has to support it so Apple stuff tends to be pretty decent about it and yeah, actually to be that's honest that's what they say these days most hardware is pretty decent about it in the early days it was excruciatingly hit and miss because if your magic packet was marginally off or if you're if the, if the network card wasn't you know if the firmware on the network card wasn't paying attention right then it wouldn't work and then the network card is supposed to poke the motherboard to say engage and if that protocol wasn't you know if there was a bug in that firmware it wouldn't work right i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of places it can go wrong with wake on lan but to
0: be honest, I sort of feel like Charlie Brown, and and you're Lucy. You're gonna, you're telling me yet again it's gonna work, and I'm gonna try it, and you're gonna pull that football up.
3: Well, I, I sound like a stuck record, but in work we actually use it extensively to wake up, you know, entire labs worth of PCs at a given time of the day, and it does actually work.
0: I believe other people have done it's. This kind of Tom Merritt always makes fun of me when I say I don't believe in things. Like I, I told him I didn't believe in VR, and he said it does exist, Allison. <laughs>
3: Uh, yeah, so it has it has a nice little GUI for Wake On Land. So you basically, you, you open up the PFSense web interface, you paste the MAC address you want to wake up into a text box, and you hit go, and it does all the work for you. And you can actually save named machines in that interface, so you can just basically, so let's say you had a file server that you might want to wake up sometimes. You could, you yeah. know, you just go in and click file server, awaken, and it should wake up. And yeah, that's a
0: real good example of something I'd like to wake up.
3: It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, It also has full captive portal support. So you know the way when you're in a hotel, you have to agree to terms and conditions before you're allowed on the internet. So you have not you have network access, but not internet access until you do something. That's called a captive portal. PfSense just has Mm -hmm. that out of the box. So you can just go in, you know, services captive portal, configure it how you want, enable, and hey, press. So you should do
0: that to people who come to your house.
3: (laughs) Well, if you were to set up a separate guest network, right? So through another network interface, you could have the captive portal only for the guests. You know, right. don't be a naughty boy and then you're allowed on my network thanks <laughs> very much you know whatever and you can also tie it in I mean PFSense can run a radio server for network authentication so you could give out accounts on your network so you can actually run full enterprise um, instead of uh, pre-shared key you could do full enterprise uh, Wi-Fi as well through PFSense if you wanted to um, mm. and in fact it, it, it has full support for something called SNMP um, which is the simple network messaging protocol, uh, which okay. is a protocol used by enterprise routers and other network equipment for both sending configurations to devices and for asking devices for their current status. So SNMP is sort of a, hey, go do this, as well as, hey, what are you doing at the moment? Uh, hmm. It serves in both of those roles. And so any sort of management tool that will graph the current state of your network or whatever is almost certainly using SNMP to gather its information. So PFSense just has that. The only reason that.
0: I've ever... The only reason I've ever heard of it is I know uh, John F. Braun complained bitterly when it was removed from the Airport Extreme uh, software.
3: Right. He said he used to
0: be able to poke around in it and they took it out.
3: Yeah. And so if you were in a corporate environment where you had bought an expensive network management solution, SNMP would be how that works. So you, you can buy a single pane of glass for a corporate network that manages HP routers and Cisco routers and whatever other Aruba and whatever other, you know, brands are out there at the moment. And the reason they can all talk to each other is because they're talking SNMP. Hmm. And so PFSense can just behave. So if you have a large network with many devices, the PFSense device will play ball, just like, you know, something that costs 5 million times as much from Cisco. It also has out-of-the-box support for uh, IPsec, L2TP, and OpenVPN VPN servers. It has a built-in network. Those are three
0: different VPN servers?
3: There are three different protocols for doing VPN. So, okay. Yeah. Cool. So OpenVPN is its own protocol, which happens to use TLS under the hood, but it is a separate protocol. L2TP is a whole different protocol. Um, and IPSec is, again, it's part of—it's built into IPv6, but it did exist before. It's, it's again, a whole different okay. protocol. It has a built-in network time server. So if you want all of your devices to have exactly the same time as each other, whether they're Windows devices or whatever, you can... Basically say everyone use, and you can use the HCP to push out this time server to people. Uh, So everyone use me as your time server and then then all of your devices will be perfectly in sync. Kind of more of a corporate feature because what you want is log correlation in a corporation. You want to know that the log file on this device over here and the log file on this device over here agree that it's five o'clock now. They don't have to be right. They just have to be in agreement. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, And then then we get into the really cool stuff like uh, PFSense just has out-of-the-box support for clustering. So if you wanted to be highly available, you could have two PFSense servers and have one of them be a failover for the other. Or you could have 10 PFSense servers and have them load balance between each other. Which, again, Hmm. your average home user is not going to do this, but PFSense can do it. Um, it has full syslog. So everything it's doing, it's logging to, to actual syslog. So all the syslog tools you have for monitoring logs on a full enterprise environment is all sitting right in there. Really nice for debugging when you have full syslog, because you're not left wondering, well, why isn't this device getting an IP address? You just go into syslog, filter by DHCPD, and it'll tell you, well, I'm not giving him an IP address because blah, blah, blah. It also has a nice, a really nice configurable dashboard. It uses cool stuff like ORD Tool for graphing. And then you can back up the whole config to a single XML file and restore it on a new device. And finally... And a, lot the, of,
0: a lot of routers can do that.
3: Yeah, exactly. And finally, the pièce de résistance, as well as all of those built-in features, it has a package management system and a library of additional features powered by the community. So... A lot of things you might want the router to do on top of what it already does are just sitting in there waiting for you. So if you were using Captive Portal, you would want to have SSL certs on it and you might not want to pay for them. So there is actually a plugin to use Let's Encrypt in conjunction with PFSense. Oh, neat. Yeah, so you know all sorts of cool things. I mean, there's lots of stuff in that plugin. Or sorry, They call it a package, but think of it as plugins. So it can do a lot, right? It is a very full-featured router OS. I don't use all of it. Um, I use the caching DNS server, like we talked about. Um, I use static DHCP reservations. I use port forwarding. I use the network time server. Um, I used to use traffic shaping before we had more internet than than I can shake a stick at. I turned it off <laughs> because it actually wasn't achieving anything anymore. And then in terms of additional packages, I have uh, a couple installed. I have something called rping, which is a GUI for scanning the network, uh, as well as an NMAP interface that you can build into PFSense, which is, again, for scanning the network. It's really useful. Uh, And then I also have a bunch of real-time graphing tools for network usage. So as well as the built-in dashboard, which shows you sort of your, you know, your grand total. Here's how much traffic I'm passing. Um, there's also some other tools you can install to show you like what what protocols and what ports and what IP addresses and basically who's doing what on the network at any one time. So I have three of them installed because they all show slightly different things. So there's n, there's Ntop, NG, there's BandwidthD, and Darkstat, which just sounds cool.
0: <laughs> Might as well install that.
3: Yeah, exactly. So... That's sort of what I'm using pfSense for. Um my old setup was the Dell OptiPlex 740 we talked about, which is, you know. Uh I think just looking at my config backups, I think I installed it. So the I installed it when it was already 7 years old. So I think I installed it in 2014. So I've done pretty well out of it. Uh but it became unstable. So then I had to replace it. So I was pretty sure I wanted to keep pfSense because I'm really happy with it. Um and the web GUI just keeps getting nicer. With every software update, it gets a little bit more, you know, resp- it didn't used to be responsive. It used to be quite clunky. And now it's all like Ajaxy and cool. And it's, it's really nice. <laughs> so I ha- I knew what software I wanted, but now I needed hardware. So I actually had quite a few options to consider. So the least mental effort is to just do the same thing again. Go into the scrap room in work grab a second-hand PC and shove an extra network card into it. The pro is obviously that it's very, very cheap. It's salvage, so the <laughs> estimated cost is nothing. Um, The cons are that it is a sizable thing to have stashed away somewhere in your house, right? It's a full desktop that you have somewhere taking up room in your house.
0: And running fans and...
3: Yeah, so it's actually quite a high-power user because it's... Keeping all of this ye olde tech powered up and warm at all times, Mm -hmm. that's not particularly power efficient. So it'd work, but I sort of thought, let's see if we can't do a little bit better. So the next thing I thought was, well, clearly, if you want a job done right, do it yourself. So I figured, how much would it cost to build my own fanless micro PC? So start with an ITX uh, or with a, a mini what is it, a Mini ITX motherboard. Basically, the smallest little motherboard you can get, the smallest little case you can get, stick a basic CPU in it, stick a little bit of RAM in it and a little bit of storage. And it's a lot of faffing around to find compatible components. I didn't find a case I liked. Um, and the whole thing basically would have come out about 300 euro-ish.
0: Oh, so not cheap, really.
3: No, I mean, it's not expensive, but it's not Cheap either, but yeah. You can, cr- you can
0: buy a you can buy a credit regular PC for three hundred bucks pretty easily, right?
3: Right, exactly. So that was my next thought. Well, instead of building my own, why don't I see if I can find a fanless micro PC that someone else has put together? And uh, particularly, mm-hmm. the Intel Nook is a good sort of starting point here because they're small little fanless PCs.
0: Oh, George That's from Tulsa is clapping his hands with glee right now, going, "Yeah, yay Nooks! He loves those Nooks."
3: Oh, well, they're lovely little devices. The problem is they're optimized for use as desktops. They're designed to run Windows Ten. So they have one Ethernet adapter and no obvious expansion port to shove another Ethernet adapter into because they're teeny-weeny-tiny. So I couldn't really get one to behave as I wanted because I really do need two Ethernet ports. And so you,
0: you needed hardwired Ethernet?
3: Well, I mean, I could have used a USB, but then the chances are no, that, but I mean, that's Wi-Fi. slower. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. The, the Wi-Fi... I use an access point to do my Wi-Fi. It does no routing; it just does an access point. Because
0: oh, okay, you didn't tell us that.
3: Yeah, so I, I, the pfSense box isn't doing Wi-Fi. It's only doing all. It's only doing all of the other work, and then I have an old Airport Extreme that is configured in bridge mode to just take the network created by pfSense and spread it into the air. And if that dies, I have a TP-Link that a friend of mine gave me because they were moving house, sitting down, waiting for me to. Blow the dust off it and then turn it on if the airport ever dies. And then I guess at that stage I can buy another cheap access point. Right. Um so I sort of looked into it and the cost was about four hundred euro and I would have had to use a USB Ethernet adapter, which means that's not actually going to give me really good Ethernet speeds. So it just right. seemed like a good fit. Basically they're lovely machines, but they're for something else. They're not for this job. Yeah. Uh, now there are. I did find some people selling pre-built fanless micro PCs designed to act as routers, and some of them are even advertised as being designed to run pfSense. So they have the pros you'd expect: small, low-powered, in theory easy. The problem is, every single vendor I could find either had no reputation or a bunch of reviews saying "stay away, stay away, stay away." <laughs> and the cost wasn't really all that cheap it was basically between 300 and 500 euro so that's kind of the same price as build your own and at least if i build my own i know what I'm, i theoretically know what i'm doing and if i get it wrong i have no one to blame but myself and no one to go fight with for a refund so then i thought hang on a second pf sense there is a company like red hat linux has a company behind it there's a company behind pf sense um, called netgate And they sell hardware specifically designed to run PFSense with all the warranties you could like and a nice support website. And in fact, they'll send you a thumb drive with PFSense ready to go. You just shove it in the front of the device and away you go. So I thought, well, how expensive can they be? Maybe they'll turn out to be not horrifically priced. So I wandered over to their website. Lo and behold, uh, a basic one designed for a small office, $175. Oh
0: really? Yeah, Wait, is, why does it say two hundred and seventy euro in
3: right? The... Because by the time I got it shipped to Ireland and paid the Irish import duties, it came to two hundred and seventy euro.
0: <laughs> oh, okay.
3: <laughs> so you guys would get it from much cheaper because you're going to pay a little bit of shipping, but not a lot because you're not sending it halfway across the world. That's
0: more than twice what it two hundred seventy euro is three hundred nine dollars. I know. That's because that's not twice. That'd right. We have twenty five. I guess
3: twenty three percent VAT. No. Right? That's an extra quarter on top. And the VAT is calculated after the shipping is applied. So you pay VAT on the shipping too.
0: That's wrong. It's oh, a value added. Don't get me <laughs> you started. Don't, okay. don't even get
3: me started <laughs> because it gets even, even dumber than that. The courier gets to charge a fee for all this hard work of collecting taxes. And you pay VAT on the fee as well. Oh, God. So UPS or DHL get to charge usually about 10 euro. Which becomes twelve fifty, well, twelve thirty. I mean, yeah, anyway, it adds up quickly, it's very annoying, which is why I don't buy stuff from Think Geek as often as I'd like, because it just becomes stupidly expensive. But the thing is, even bearing in mind all of that stupidity, two hundred and seventy euro is right in the ballpark of build your own, only with zero hassle, cheaper than buying a Nook, and right in the ballpark of buying someone else's assembled router device with no warranty whatsoever. So that actually makes that really the obvious solution. So that's what I did.
0: Wow. Now, how big is this thing? Is it NUC-sized?
3: Yes, it is tiny. It is the size of an Ethernet switch. Like a little oh, mini wow. Ethernet switch. Like a, It is smaller than an Airport Extreme. It's probably about the size of an Airport Express.
0: Oh, wow. That's cool. And yep. have you set it up and played with it yet?
3: Oh, it's been powering my Internet since about... 30 minutes after it arrived, because like oh, I said. Oh, really? Say,
0: oh, you export, import, boom, export, done? Export,
3: import, done, right. So, exactly. So, basically, really? I set it up in parallel. So, because I, I have a, a router from my ISP, which I don't trust or don't like, so I always had that router plugged into the back of my PFSense Dell. Well, there's four ports on the crappy router from the ISP, so parallel to my Dell, I put the little PFSense box, I stuck an Ethernet cable in the front of it, tested it was working, and then just swapped... The, you know the real cable for my network from the dell into the front of the PF Sense box and we were away basically 10 second outage
0: well that's no fun i know <laughs> you didn't get a, you didn't have to work on it at all
3: uh no so basically the, the box came it had the little device it had the power supply uh, and it had a usb drive in the shape of a credit card that you sort of flipped around and then shoved in the front of the device so, you shove a monitor and a USB keyboard and the Ethernet jacks into the PFSense box and the little thumb drive. You power it on. It says, Oh, hello. I see there's nothing installed on this device yet. Would you like me to install from the USB drive over here? You go, Yes. It then gets up and running. You then connect your laptop or whatever you like to the one port, on, you know, to the inside port, to the LAN port. Uh, you go to the default IP address, which is 192.168.0.1. You log in with the default admin username and password. You say restore from backup. You copy up your XML file. The thing reboots, and hey, presto, it is as you left it.
0: Is it. Uh, does the XML file have your real username and password?
3: It does. So once that's done, wow. you're back to actual proper username, which is not admin, and actual proper password, which is not. I think it's five zeros <laughs> is the default. Actually, no, sorry. Wow. The default, I think, is pfSense. Isn't that kind
0: of disappointing that you didn't get to play with it, though?
3: No, because I was in a hurry. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And being without internet makes me cranky. And my internet was really flaky, you know. I think that day we'd rebooted three times and it was 10 a.m.
0: Oh, yikes.
3: So when the doorbell rang and it was the postman, I was like, yes, yes, I will take this off you. Here is your... I had to pay cash on delivery for the bloody taxes. Yes, here is your money. Go away now. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Scampered upstairs and put it in place. Actually, was it I believe it was under the stairs. It used to be one, it?
3: it used to be sitting next to the front door, but because this one's so teeny weeny tiny, it's behind the telly. It actually, <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's smaller than my Apple TV. Because it's sitting next oh, to the wow. Apple TV. So behind the telly used to be a giant big Dell box hiding behind the telly. And now behind the telly is an Apple TV, an Ethernet switch, and this PFSense device.
0: Nice. It was under the stairs at one time, though, right?
3: It, it was, yes. It was. Okay.
0: I just think it's interesting that, that I know where somebody's router is in their house 12,000 miles away or whatever it
3: is. <laughs> well, the thing is, the Airport Extreme is still sitting out in the hole next to the front door because it has much better coverage there. So that's another reason to not have your router necessarily be your Wi-Fi access point, because where the internet happens to come into your house and where you want your Wi-Fi to be beamed from are not necessarily the same thing. So because we have cable internet, the internet arrives next to the telly. But that's a terrible place for a Wi-Fi router because it's literally in a corner of the house.
0: Yeah. So, but that is still where you have it.
3: Well, that's what the Sense box is, but because I use yeah. a wireless access point that's separate, the wireless access point is sitting out in the hall, which is much more central, and it does a much, much better job of getting it signaled throughout the whole house.
0: Now, how are you running the Ethernet, call to, uh, uh, Ethernet cable to the center of the house?
3: I, I, There's these little nails you can buy with a little round hook on them. <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I don't just have Ethernet out to the Wi-Fi access point. I have Ethernet to every room in the house. I'm sitting Do you here... Really? Oh, yeah. I, re- I ran one Ethernet cable up the stairs and there's there's a tiny little Ethernet switch sitting under the, one of the desks up here, which then has an Ethernet cable for every upstairs bedroom. And then so there's one Ethernet cable coming into my podcasting room and then there's another Ethernet switch sitting in here next to my desk, which then breaks that out for my various machines up here. So, we go, yeah, Do we have Ethernet in every we, room.
0: We only just got wired Ethernet in my den and Steve's den when we did the home remodel.
3: Yeah, I, I couldn't pass we, without it.
0: we were unwilling to run a cable down the hallway and around a corner and up and up and down doors and stuff like that. So we just kept not doing it. Like, whenever Steve really needed to do some real work, we just threw an Ethernet cable down the hallway. <laughs> and, uh, like, when we did all those tests of the, um, of the Drobos, we had to run the hmm. test from his Mac and mine at the same time. And so we had to cable down the hallway for, like, three weeks. You're tripping but, um, over yourself and... Our new best friend Wayne, the uh, electrician that worked on the house for, he was putting in all kinds of other stuff. He was putting in light switches, and we're like, "Hey, while you're up there, could you drop this cable down there for me and poke this hole in the wall and stuff?" So he uh, he wired us up.
3: Excellent. So I'm I hoping you're know, cat I, six, cat seven.
0: Oh yeah, 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 cat six, whatever it takes. Um, we all we do not have wired Ethernet downstairs at all. No, no room in the house.
3: Yeah, no, I couldn't live like that. <laughs> We have wired what, we going have, to the Apple TV as well. Um, well, the Apple TV sitting right next to, the, to, to, to where the internet comes what? in and to where the PFSense box is, so that's kind of very straightforward. But it's, My it's,
0: understanding is that the uh, Apple TV, at least one generation of them, uh, if you plugged in wired Ethernet, it uh, dumbed down to 100 base-T and wired oh, so no, wireless no, no, could the, actually the, be faster.
3: That may have been true and very early, but the, 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 the fourth gen definitely does not do that it has a gig ethernet card and it brags about it on apple's webpage.
0: okay it might have been like the three um
3: yeah i i think the first time i i've i, I thought an apple tv was worth the effort was the, the fourth gen when it could run apps so that's sort of what actually no that's not true i did own an earlier one which may have been a second gen but given that yeah, it couldn't even second. do hd it I could probably have done Okay down. so
0: it is actually uh okay according to I, I download bug it was not until the Apple TV 4K that it brought back gigabit ethernet. The Apple TV 4 they're saying does not. I wonder if we can find that in uh Mac Tracker.
3: I know Mac Tracker is going to know um because whatever whatever is in our Apple TV it runs HD really well.
0: Um Well yeah, ours runs HD really well and has been on Wi-Fi ever since the day we got it.
3: Yeah, but so Wi-Fi's actually really to be honest that's kind house. of all that matters, right? So it right. runs it runs full HD without any problem with the Ethernet cable up its bottom and I didn't have to type my sixty whatever character password through that bloody remote control. <laughs> well,
0: that's worth it right there. Yeah, no, uh nope. Your Apple TV fourth gen is one hundred base T. So if you unplugged yeah, it, fine. it would likely actually be faster.
3: Well, no, because I'm not gonna get more than I'm not gonna get more than hundred base T on my wireless network. Why? Well, I don't, I could run a speed test on it to make sure, but I don't think you generally... Mine's
0: faster than that. But my, my, uh, Ethernet, my internet is faster. Yeah, but I don't but, have an N uh,
3: router yet. I have a 10 year old Airport Extreme.
0: Ah, okay. So I you think would, I
3: have G and I might even but have But just N.
0: interesting, inf- interesting information that they did that, isn't it?
3: Yeah, but I guess that they can't do 100%. 4K video. So it, until you, uh, 1080p, does don't it doesn't need, it. need Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But that's why Wi Fi. It doesn't matter to use Wi Fi. We're fine.
3: We have, well, if you have a good no trouble, if you have a good AC network, then you're getting really good speeds. I, yeah, but fear. I've
0: never owned. I've never had wi- uh, w- wired Ethernet downstairs, and I've been back to the. Well, I had the first generation Apple TV, but I had to throw that away. It was yeah. horrible.
3: But again, back then you were you weren't even pushing HD at it, so
0: yeah. Yeah, so it's grown with it.
3: So yeah, they they have kind of grown together, really, haven't they? And I think the the reason Apple used to care about Wi Fi was because they used to be interested in making it go faster. And nowadays, it's, it just is. No, they don't care. <laughs> right, yeah, it just right. is. Why do, we, why do we need to do this? Someone else can take care of this headache.
0: Exactly. Well, when uh, Bart and I decided to talk about this, I said, "How much content do you think there is?" And he says, "Well, I could briskly go through it in ten minutes, or we could blather on for thirty, forty minutes if you want." <laughs> I chose that, right?
3: <laughs> and in fairness, I think I—I I don't think we were blathering. I think you know there's no good, good, good meaty, meaty, nerdy content here. Um, yeah, no,
0: I really like this. This is interesting. I—I I still don't know that I would go do something like this, but it makes me want to go play with it.
3: Well, the thing is, unless you have a problem to be solved you know if you're very happy with your router it makes your network do everything you need your network to do well then your router is perfect for you
0: right but then you get fomo you know
3: well the thing is you can always you can always install pf sense and have a parallel network right your, your y can have an extra you turn your y into a trident Ooh. Right? what if Nor- i could
0: put it on my uh my new raspberry pi
3: you will get it installed. Uh, it just right. won't be particularly won't performant because well no, you can do you can use a USB Ethernet adapter with the with the Pi.
0: Huh? Yeah, see?
3: It will work, see? but every forum on the internet tells you it will work, but it will be slow. Yeah. But yeah, if you're yeah, just yeah. tinkering with the what you know, if you just want to see, the, to see the interface and see what it can do and make it go, it doesn't matter if it's fast or not, right? You're experimenting, you're playing. So yeah, yeah, the Raspberry Pi will be fine if you can get a sec, second Ethernet card onto it. I'm or even uh, Wi-Fi. I'm gonna... You could even use PFSense to to broadcast over Wi-Fi instead of over Ethernet. I just, the way my network is set up, I I want Ethernet into my Switch, which then broadcasts around the house.
0: Sure. Uh, I have, uh, I'm, I'm actually blowing my own story, but I'm going to tell it more than once for sure. We had a, a little holiday party and it was a celebration of our. It was an open house to show off the new, uh, newly remodeled house, oh. and everybody brought beautiful bottles of wine. People brought gin. They brought flowers. They brought chocolate, and uh, one person, Ed Tobias, brought pie. Ooh. Brought me a raspberry pie. Oh, <laughs> isn't that the most awesome thing
3: ever? <laughs> Did he do the I've... logo and in, in in like icing on top? Because that would have just been like taking the biscuit. No.
0: No, it was perfect. It's it's clear and he, and he wrapped a band, uh, a rubber band around it to hold the uh, the USB cable, and that's it. So I have not yet had a chance to play with it because I've been traveling and people and family and everything. So I have not played with it yet, cool. uh, but I can't wait. So yeah, he sent me the manual, and I'm supposed to be reading and, and learning and such, which I have not
3: started. Interesting, yeah, because you have all sorts of choices to make there, from what operating system to run to what you're going to do with it. You lots of nerdy potential I know. there.
0: I know it's going to be fun, but I, I got to give a shout out to Ed because it was so funny. Just to, I, I took this great picture of this, this array of gifts people brought us with, you know, Ghirardelli chocolate and beautiful bottles of wine. Everything's got flowers and there's bows and ribbons. And then there's a raspberry pie sitting in the middle. And don't tell the other people, but this was my favorite gift. <laughs> and there was Ghirardelli, Ghirardelli chocolate in there too. So, all right, Bart. Well, I promised I wouldn't keep you too long. And there I did.
3: Yeah, well, as I say, it was it was it was fun to talk about, and uh, at, at some stage, normal service will be resumed after we finish up with our holiday season madness. So, whenever that is, and until then, happy computing.
0: Well, that's going to wind up another year of the No Silicast without a missed episode. It doesn't matter if I don't have a voice if I'm on vacation. It doesn't matter. We have every single week. We have the No Silicast and uh, I'm I'm proud of that, as you can tell, and I hope you guys appreciate it, and I know that you guys do. But that is going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that to, by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, check out at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com slash whatever you're looking for. Looking for Patreon? podfeed.com slash Patreon. Looking for our Facebook group? podfeed.com slash Facebook. Looking for our Slack community? Podfeet.com slash Slack. Want to join the live chat room? Podfeet.com slash chat want to find those Amazon affiliate links, podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5pm Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. And I'll see you on the flippity flip.